0: the script it's always kind of like it's the same in comics like i was saying before about deadlines it's kind of like get the script right first you know just how, yeah how hard it be you know when you've got that, the resources of you know the, the bond franchise you know you, you you can hire any screenwriter you want to do this you know just get it right get the script right guys
1: hey welcome I'm recording this the morning it goes out, and I'm really sorry for the delay, but I guess in relationship to last week, we're really early. Yeah, a shitstorm kind of landed on my shores yesterday, and it's been a real pain in the ass dealing with it in the last, I don't know, 12 hours. So I'll talk about it later, but right now, while everything is in the middle of things, don't want to talk about it family's good life is good work is good all that stuff it's just something else and it's just a real big pain in the ass and i just wish people could be (laughs) they could just get along and be cool why does everyone have to be so fucking annoying anyway i'll get back to this when i have some time to cool down um i've been busy ever since i got back from the nebula conference been writing, working on the outline. I already have book two's outline done, but I need to get it kind of more fleshed out and write book three. So I have a complete through line for this whole series and not have any mistakes that I forget because new ideas always crop up and (laughs) want to play, play their hand too. Um, and in the meantime, while I'm doing all that, I'm hunting for an agent and doing all that work. So if you are an agent and you listen, thanks. Want to cut, <laughs> cut that out the all the hustle and bustle. I'd love to get together for a cup of coffee. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think I'm that lucky anyway. Um, I also, you know, Hey, while bearing souls and stuff, If you enjoy the show, it'd be great if you would leave a review or a rating on whatever um, podcast application you listen on. Or if you don't already subscribe to my Substack, hop on over there. It's jalexmorrissey.substack.com. And please subscribe. It's free. Don't worry about that. Um, I just kind of like to know who's out there and I can talk to you in a little more depth on other things that I may hint at or gloss over here. So you can go to my website. It's the same J Alex Morrissey, all one word. And, um, the link to subsack is there or anything else. And it would just be nice to, um, you know, know you're listening and, you know, carry on the conversation. Uh, this week's guest is Andy Diggle. Um, Andy is a consummate writer. Um, he wrote the losers. That was his baby. Uh, it was a great series and a really good movie. Um, we have a great talk about, uh, writing the process, um, our struggles with ADHD and how writing is kind of our medicine. So it's a, it was a really great talk and, um, I hope you enjoy it. This is me with Andy Diggle.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, maybe that's you know, true. Maybe that's true. I find that like with, with me, maybe this is partly a result of my ADHD, but like the boundaries between the kind of like work life and home life very much blur. You know, I keep very weird. Yeah. And, uh, okay. Well, yeah, that's. So, and it's partly being a freelancer as well, you know, because, you know, mm-hmm. again, it blurs boundaries, you know, so I'm always thinking about the stuff I'm working on, but. I'm also always that also includes when I'm supposed to be doing something else. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so there's no. no oh switch. man,
1: yeah that that I guess that ties back to like our, kind of our first exchange on Twitter, which was sort of based around ADHD because you were sort of going through that moment where it was just like it it, it can like you know be that giant like sort of log on the on the train rail, you know, and it's just threatening okay. to knock you off and um and, and yeah I, I mean dude it's like the it is my daily struggle like it is a, it is a consuming do you have any you know techniques tactics and procedures <laughs> that you employ to
0: nope. help uh, the only thing i cuz i'm full of i'm full of good advice none of which i can actually mm-hmm. follow myself you know, oh. like, there's lots of good writer advice and freelancer advice for people who don't have weird brain wiring. But, like, yeah. you know, my friend Anthony Johnson wrote a book specifically for writers on how to get shit done. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's really good advice if you don't have ADHD. Uh, yeah. The only thing I found that actually particularly works for me is about what I say yes to. Most useful thing I learned. Oh. I've only known for about three years now that I've got ADHD, and it kind of suddenly everything else in my whole life is suddenly makes a lot more sense now. The one thing uh, that really lit up uh, a fire under me was I think it was Ed hallowell described it as uh, having an interest based nervous system, um, <laughs> which suddenly everything made a lot of sense because it means that when I'm interested in something, my brain lights up like a pinball machine and I can hyper focus mm-hmm. for hours and it's. Everything's fun and interesting and I can perform like 100%. When I'm not interested, even the simplest tasks become completely impossible for reasons that are basically impossible to explain to people who don't have it because it isn't rational. You know, it's like, why is this so hard? You should be able to do this easily. I should, but I can't. And it was kind of weirdly reassuring to discover that I'm not alone. And that's pretty normal for people who have this particular kind like, of wiring, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, so so the answer to the question is, like, no, I haven't found techniques that work. But what I found does work is say no to things that I know aren't going to be interesting. Uh, okay. And say yes to the things that are going to be interesting. And that's got nothing to do with how, you know, if I'm working on a franchise character or something, it's got nothing to do with how popular or successful that character or franchise might be. It's... Mm-hmm often like the more obscure characters and you know the c-lists and things that aren't necessarily going to sell very well but my brain just goes i've, I've got an angle i've got like I, I can find a way to make this interesting for myself you know yeah um and often that's you get a lot more wiggle room with lesser known characters as well like they don't you know the company the publisher might not mind you like noodling around with it a bit more in a way, sure. that you probably wouldn't be allowed to do uh, for some big A list thing. And also for big A list stuff, it's all, especially in comics, you know, uh, it's all tied up in so much continuity that even the editors can't keep track of it. And it becomes an impediment to storytelling. Uh, uh, I can't, for me, like the, the writing stuff, when I'm on a roll, when I kind of feel like I know what I'm doing and I'm in the zone and all the rest of it, you know, like hyper focusing, uh, it's kind of like playing Mario Kart and you just want to kind of go as fast as you can. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and when people keep asking you to change stuff, uh, then that's like they're kind of throwing, you know, bananas and bombs in your path and stuff. And it's, you know, how frustrating that is when you spin off the road because somebody threw a banana in the way or whatever it is. This is a terrible analogy, by the way, but it works for me. No, um, no. Yeah, it, that frustration is, is what it feels like. It's just everybody just get out of the way. I know what I'm doing, you know. Um, yeah,
1: I mean. That's kind of I mean, that's sort of a client world, you know, because other people, you know, this is a client factor, whether the client has good ideas, bad ideas, legal needs, whatever the thing is, we end up having to incorporate this, even though like our internal monologue is like, oh, no, 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 like you don't see the whole picture yet, you know, and and it's tough because Timelines don't always offer offer the opportunity to kind of walk people to the idea in a time that is going to make everybody get it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to kind of shorthand it and that is a problem in personality.
0: Sometimes you just need time for it to gestate, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, don't, like, I, I envy those writers who can just churn out huge quantities of good work, you know, on demand instantly. I'm not that guy, you know? yeah um like which again comes back to the choosing the right projects thing but even but even when i have got something i'm excited about like there's a, a thing i'm working on at the moment but uh, beside the expanse that won't be announced until the autumn but I, it's another thing that's made my brain l- light up like a christmas tree um but there's so much of it I, i'm so inspired with it and i'm having so many ideas that it's Going to take some time to figure out how they're all going to connect. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Often, often, yeah, yeah. Slightly non linear way of thinking. And it's good because it's like, it makes it very spontaneous and it creates lots of connections. But it's also slightly disorganized. Well, extremely disorganized. Uh, And so actually, I can't just suddenly put everything I've got down on paper. Well, I am. I've written about 10,000 words, but it's all completely disjointed because I haven't figured out. It's like I've got all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. I just haven't figured out how they go together yet. I'm confident that they will. You know i've got mm-hmm. a sense of the big picture you know i found the corners of the jigsaw puzzle um which for me are the kind of structural points like issues and so on like you know act turning points whatever but yeah but like you know often something you know it's either they call it gestating or percolating you know sometimes you just got to let it mm-hmm. away for a while because you know you know it's going to come but it's just going to take time and often especially in the comics industry they need everything yesterday you know sure it's kind of like you know well especially if you're doing a new series like well we don't have to launch it next month you know or in three months or whatever it is like you know we could just wait till it's ready and like, but <laughs> it never works that way in comics they're like no no we need it now uh, and that we need to get the artist working immediately I'm like, okay who's the artist we don't know yet then you don't actually need it now do you, you know you could write you know, the script's ready and then you find the right guy you know that gives you gives us all more time and, but for whatever reason, presumably financial reasons, you know, they just.
1: Well, that and hierarchical, hierarchical reasons. Yeah. I mean, everybody has somebody to answer to. So unfortunately, most people aren't willing to sort of pick up the sword and go fight the fight. They'd rather just go, no, 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 this is the way we all agreed upon. Let's keep going. Yeah. And uh yeah, I get that. There's I
0: mean, and pl- for, You know, for having, you know, having a roadmap, you know, like sticking sure. to a plan, you know. Coming back to the sort of developing the idea thing, I'm always very open and fluid to other people's ideas early on in the process, you know, like doing a, mm-hmm. like a detailed outline and so on. So I always say, you know, let me know, first of all, let me know what you want. You're talking about like, you know, the certain kind of obligations, like might be legal or, you know, respecting a character or a franchise, but that's fine. It's my job to kind of meet the brief. But mm-hmm. I want to know what the brief is up front, you know, early on. You know, yeah. tell me if I'm pointing in the right direction before I kind of hit the jets, you know um i always describe it as like you know the because the longer it gestates or i'm really mixing my metaphors here <laughs> i'm a terrible writer um it's kind of like you know you're building a building right and when it's finished they might say oh no no it's great can you just move it two inches to the left right you know and it's kind of like well it's easier to do that if you tell me that before the concrete foundations have set you know what i mean mm-hmm. you know, before we pull yeah. the concrete uh so yeah, it's kind of like, you know, like having every like as much communication as possible early on in the process is always a good thing. You know, like, you know, this kind of thing, that kind of thing, just get the, the tone and the vibe right and make sure everybody's happy with the general roadmap kind of thing. Um, because, yeah, once once I've actually written something and they say they what they want to change, you know, like something that's often like a change might be something that seems innocuous on the surface, but because everything's there for a reason. Pulling it mm-hmm. out suddenly makes everything fall apart, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, it's happened to me a couple of times. Fortunately, not very ins-
1: Inspirational ideas are light and easy to move, mm. but the more you sort of work them, they build mass. And that mass is a harder to course correct because everything is connected and it yeah. becomes only really sure. problematic.
0: Yeah. You know, it's the EM Forster thing, you know, like only connect. Um, I think that's what storytelling is. Mm -hmm. storytelling is a process of making connections you know because real life is so you know so complex and so random i think we kind of tell stories in order to try and make sense of it and that's by by simplifying and connecting and that's how we create meaning i think that's actually kind of how human intelligence works it's about it's literally about networking connections you know yeah drawing drawing connections meaning between things i think that's what intelligence is uh but that's all that's a that's a whole other conversation um yeah, but it's just this question of, like, you know, which connections do you want to make? Which connections might the publisher or the editor want and which ones do they not? Um, mm-hmm. Because, yeah, because once you do start connecting everything, you pull one thing out and it breaks. It, it's not just one thing, as you say. Everything's yeah. connected. So, you know, it's interesting.
1: Well, it's like, like when we watch those, you know, you watch that inevitable movie that you go, something's missing, mm-hmm. but you know, you know, Objectively, that somewhere in the editing process they needed to tighten something up, so they pulled something out, and now there's this weird hollow space that doesn't make everything fit. And you can watch this whole movie, and you go, something like there's just this kind of weird somethingness, and
0: it's, it's, not, it's not an intellectual thing, though. It's a feeling you feel. Right. It.
1: Yeah, we've all got totally.
0: a story. Some people more than others. It's kind of like slightly mm-hmm. hard to find. It's like having a sense of humor. You know, it's not something you can teach, but I think it's almost like a gut feeling. But yeah, it's like listening to like a, a wrong note in music or something like that or discordant yeah. or off the beat or whatever. It's you, you kind of feel it almost emotionally when there's, you know, not you might not be able to articulate it fully, but you can feel when there's something missing. But I think the converse is also true. I think, you know, especially in the, when you're watching like some bloated over long movie that's kind of like, you know, half an hour longer than it needs to be often you kind of like you wish they'd edited it more and it would actually be mm-hmm. more effective if they just tightened it up a little bit. I, I sort of read yeah. an interesting interview the other day um, or an anecdote. I think it was on Twitter, but it was, it was talking about the editing of the film uh, Silence of the Land, which Jonathan from Demi movie. Sure. And he said that um, they basically edited the film and it was pretty much locked and they were just, it was good to go. And then William yeah. Goldman, the screenwriter, had seen this uh, uh, this, this edit. Uh, and he rang up the editor and said, Listen, or, or Demi, I can't remember which it was, and said um, there was a whole chunk that he felt was extraneous. Uh, it was like hmm. right at the beginning of the third act. It was kind of all of the exposition sort of setting up this you know, conflict. with, uh, And it, it just wasn't necessary, and it slowed it all down. And he was like, no, trust me, you just chop that 10 minutes out. It's going to tighten everything up and create this much faster launch pad into act three. And they thought he was crazy, but they tried it, and it just totally worked. Yeah, um, And there's a few films like that where you think actually less would be more. Like, I, I still want to do my own fan edit of The Abyss, the James Cameron movie. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a big fan of James Cameron. I think it's great. Sure, sure. He's one of my all-time favorite films. And I, maybe I'm crazy, but I think The Abyss would be better without the aliens. I think if you just edited out every mm-hmm. scene with aliens or underwater alien spacecraft from The Abyss, it would be a better movie. Um, you wouldn't have an ending, unfortunately, but the ending. But it
1: would be a there. mystery. It would it would make it much more of a like a sort of a mystery in a human story. Yeah.
0: Well, because the human yeah. drama is great in that movie. You know, yeah. you've, got, oh, like, yeah. you've got a sunken submarine and a bunch of Navy SEALs who commandeer an oil rig to go and recover the warheads. Well, mm-hmm. you know, you've got the Cuban missile crisis going on upstairs, and then the lead SEAL goes crazy because basically goes paranoid. Schizophrenic. That's a movie. Right, that's a sure. great pressure cooker yeah, yeah. of a scenario. You're like, you do not need aliens to come and like sprinkle magic fairy dust on everybody to give them a happy ending. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It'd be just kind of a fun little storytelling project, I think.
1: Yeah, well, you mentioned you mentioned Cameron, and it's funny because that's sort of the feeling I had when I walked out of Avatar Two. Was I like, you know, my wife was like, "How was?" it? I'm like, I think it could have been a half hour shorter at least. Like, I think they could have really tightened it up. Because I just felt there's a lot of indulgent stuff happening.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I've, I've, I, you know I I enjoyed Avatar 2. You know, I enjoyed the first one. I mean, people people give it a, a you know a hard time, but you know, it's a thoroughly entertaining movie It's like brilliant a- action choreography, especially in the third act. But Avatar two, I kind of it felt. I did have issues with it. it. Partly, I think some of the kind of virtual cinematography felt kind of shaky. Uh, and I know it was meant to be kind of like trying to give that kind of shaky cam vibe, but it felt video gamey. Not because of the CGI, it felt video gamey in the kind of randomness of the camera that you get when you're hmm. playing a character in a game. Um, it, it didn't feel as fluidly composed as it might. Um, and I don't, I don't know what you know. I haven't really thought about it in much depth, but something, something in that respect felt a little off. And I had a slight problem with the the kind of the, the lack of narrative momentum in the first half. Just the fact yeah. that Jake Sully, who was established as being this very um determined hero, uh, and defender of his found family, or now literally his new family, um, to just run away. Uh that yeah. felt it did, I didn't feel the urgency of that enough. I think in the start of the movie, you know, the, the the threat felt a little too abstract and distant. I think I would rather have seen that be something that he was forced to do rather than chose mm-hmm. quite so easily.
1: Like a concrete, like a concrete example needed to be set as an as a more of an inciting, you know, event yeah. for him to get him to to be in, in action versus this sort of like, well, there's nothing we can do. Better go. Yeah. And you're like mm, okay. Yeah, no, I get, yeah. that. I get that.
0: He's a dad now, you know. I get that. So, sure. you know, it like yeah. so it kind of almost makes it more of a refugee story than a fighting to defend your homeland story. And I get that. Uh, I just, yeah. I, I just didn't feel it enough in the first half.
1: Yeah, I know. I, and it's it, you know talking about the camera work, I wonder how intentional on Cameron's end that would have been because I mean he is very conscious of sort of media trend. And if there are so many people out there enjoying story through a video game perspective, maybe he is even trying to bring some of that sensibility maybe. into his work. I mean,
0: uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to see. I haven't seen any behind the scenes stuff yet. I know that the yeah. movie is going to have like a ton of that of that stuff. But he's, he's such an amazingly talented filmmaker. You know, oh, for sure. Everything he does is so intentional. You know, he really knows what he's mm-hmm. doing. So yeah, I would, I'd be interested to find out, you know, like uh, whether whether it was literally virtual camera work or or what, you know, I, I don't know, you know, but that's the great thing about Cameron movies, you know, I'm not really thinking about how it was done while I'm watching it. I'm just kind of, no. I'm I'm in the movie while I'm watching it. It's only afterwards. I'm like, how did they do that? You know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's it's the same thing with Fincher. Like I watch a Fincher film, I'm immersed and then I go, how the hell did he do that? Like how, you know, and it's just these, these very intentional creators. So you, so I want to, I want to hop, I'm going to hop back because you said something that I really connected with and, and it sort of happened at this, I think at the same time in my life. Um, you said you found out two years ago that you had ADHD.
0: Yeah, I think it was, I guess probably two or three years ago. It was shortly before COVID.
2: Um, Okay.
0: Maybe like a year, six months. I think I I have no sense of time, which is another ADHD thing. Everything blurs together. But yeah, but so it's fairly recent. When I'm 52 years old, so you know I've been around for nearly half a century before finally making sense of this stuff. Uh, And it was like it was just such a revelation. I wish I'd known this stuff when I was 10. You know, yeah, yeah. It would have it would have literally literally changed the course of my life. You know, Uh, but I'm a lot happier now because I kind of I understand what's going on. It's like okay. I'm not broken, you know, I just, I know No, it's not just, it's not a question of, you know, like, Oh, you know, I know what's wrong with me now. It's like, Oh no, now I know why I'm really good at the things I'm good at. You
2: know?
0: Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, better choices, you know?
1: Right. Like, I mean, like, I mean, superhero analogy, but like Superman isn't Superman unless he's, uh, you know, weakened by a kryptonite. Like, I mean, they're, in my case,
0: that's that's doing my tax return. You know, like any any oh, enterprise yeah. paperwork and admin, that's my kryptonite.
1: <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. Like the oh, problem is, sure. I'm also like it, you know paying bills and all that kind of stuff. I'm also absolutely untrusting of automatic bill pay. So like I can't even like use the system to game it. I'm I'm like I don't trust that. So I I you know I'm caught in that middle zone. Um, yeah, I was diagnosed when I was a kid, like when I was eleven ish. But my uh, mother and and father, I guess, because he probably was in on the story, um, made a choice to never tell me. So when I was in my late 30s, yeah, close to 40, on a phone call in the middle of a conversation, oh, yeah, well, you were diagnosed with that. And I'm like, like
0: oh. Those days, they, they, it was widely assumed. A, it was more diagnosed in America than over here, and also they kind mm-hmm. of assumed it was a childhood thing that people would grow out of. You know, I yeah, I guess kind of what they thought at the time, and it turns out that wasn't true. But
1: you know, yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, but the the thing was, is I just remember being. I, I remember the struggle so vividly through you know, you know, high school and college, and you know, my twenties. And just constantly going like, Hey, so wait, why can't I do this? Like it was just one of these things, but yet like everyone's like, Oh, you're so clever. You're so creative, you know? And I get all the accolades on the things that societal societally don't mean shit. So, you know, meanwhile, like I have a sister who is nothing like that and is academically, you know, confident. And it was just like, watch her take off, watch me go, what's going on? And that was always a very hard kind of, you know, road to you know navigate.
0: And you get the whole, uh, well, you know, you've shown that you're perfectly capable, you're perfectly mm-hmm. intelligent. So you should be able to do this. So you're just being yeah. lazy or whatever, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you, you start here, you know, you hear that for half a century, you start to take it on board. It starts to shape your, completely shapes your sense of self, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I've been going through the past few years, I've been going through a lot of kind of like, you know, as Yoda would say, unlearning what you have learned kind of things. Like, oh, yeah, no, actually, I'm, I'm not stupid. I'm not incompetent. I'm good at some things and bad at other things. But it's been really yeah. interesting sort of looking back over a whole lifetime. And it's hard not to kind of feel a sense of grief for what might have been, had I mm-hmm. known. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, it's like, okay, good. It's actually weirdly reassuring in another way. And it's kind of, I feel like I'm giving myself permission to be weird in public and to, it's okay (laughs) to be bad at that stuff and good at this stuff. It's like, no, that's who I am. So, you know, I'm a lot more comfortable in my own skin these days.
1: Yeah. No, I, it's a, I mean, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I, you know, I asked you if you had tools and the reason I bring it up is it just, you know, because if anybody listens to this, who has, is struggling with this or, you know, it's a problem. Like, I think it's good to know like what you can do and outside of whatever sort of medical intervention, which, you know, if that works for people, great. Um, For me, like, I remember recognizing early on without any information about this, just on my own that I realized when I watched television in the morning, my day was totally screwed up. Like my mind couldn't focus. And on the days that I didn't turn on whatever the thing was in the morning before like while i'm you know getting ready to you know sit and draw comic book pages i could focus i could stay on top of stuff and it was a real interesting kind of awareness this is before any diagnosis was handed over to me and then in the subsequent years i've taken on things like meditation and um you know journaling in the morning to kind of keep my mind on track with things which helps immensely it's not perfect because i'm not perfect but um there, you know there are tools that i have put into play which do work yeah the morning thing um,
0: was interesting because like you know and my kids are like this too my kids both also have adhd and um it's funny looking back clearly i got it from my dad Look, like, there's so much in his like you know characteristics and looking back now that i know what to look for it's like okay yeah no this is this is clearly genetic and i i drew that particular straw um but yeah but we're all very nocturnal we tend to mm. kids, we tend to stay up very. you know we go to bed at sort of three four in the morning and then sleep all morning uh wow. regardless of how much sleep i've had i'm always it takes me hours to wake up i, I cannot mm. work first thing in the morning at least i can't like you know write anything finished you know finished polished looking script first thing in the morning um a lot of people uh, wake up bright and early and that's their sharpest but and a lot of writers do but i'm not like that but what i do find is that when i've just woken up it takes me a long time to get like just to get out of bed frankly but, hmm. when I'm, but when i've just woken up somehow like my subconscious is still kind of close to the surface you know and often i have some of my best ideas just after waking up so i'll kind of grab the laptop and i'll just sit there in bed and then just rattle out this stream of consciousness stuff you know like it might be like an insight for a story i'm working on or how to connect some stuff within two different stories that suddenly join together and form something new uh, or just completely new ideas that you know maybe it came from a dream or the subconscious or whatever but in terms of pure creativity that's where some of the really good stuff comes from and you know you, you hear about sort of scientists or whatever who will um You know, always keep a notebook next, you know, next to the chair where they nap. So when they wake up and they can suddenly write down the insights or whatever. But it's not the sort of thing you can really control. It's kind of luck of the draw. Um, I don't have a lot of, uh, yeah, I mean, like the meditation thing is great. I I hear that it's great. I I don't have the self-discipline to do that. You know, and I've tried. I've tried all these things that people recommend. Like people always say, oh, if you exercise, it wakes your brain up and you'll feel brilliant. You know, when I exercise, I always feel like I've been run over by a truck. You know, <laughs> like, there's something wrong with my uh, mitochondria or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like for, like I say, for me, it's. I know what you mean about the distraction. If you distract yourself with with TV or whatever, um, then it's very difficult to to get back on track, or just any kind of interruption. I find just not to mm-hmm. train straight off the tracks um, and also knowing that I've got something else I've got to do later in that day you know makes it very difficult yep. I kind of feel like it's looming over me it's looking over my shoulder and it's very difficult to focus on because my memory is so terrible I know that I will forget the important thing I've got to do later if I'm not thinking about it right now doesn't matter how mm-hmm. important it is um so like I, I now kind of I put everything into my calendar the load, an apple calendar on my watch will ping at me when i need to be doing something.
2: Else right get sure.
0: because otherwise i'll just disappear out of my head it's crazy um, yeah but yeah like the, it's it's adhd is so badly named because we do not have a deficit of attention you know like i, have, sure. I do not have a deficit i pay attention to everything i mm-hmm. find everything interesting and so and, and anything that's interesting will take over my entire focus of attention. So I'll hyper-focus on the most random nonsense, you know, when I should be focusing on the thing I'm supposed to be doing,
1: you know. And it's, it's it's task attention. It's yeah. it's it's converting what attention is necessary for the task at hand. That's yeah. what's missing. Like we're just, the the, the ability to just kind of flip, flip a switch and say, okay, I'm going to go do this now. Yeah. It's very hard to do. I used to always say, um, I'm an amazing monotasker. Because I can do that one thing and I can do it really well. But when you have me, like you know, like right now I'm, I'm working on my novel, on a rewrite of my novel, but I'm also generating a comic series at the same time. And it's so hard for me to hop back and forth between the two. I could do one of them at a time, you know, with great aplomb, but it's just going back and forth. There's this weird, and they're very different ways of writing. So there's no sort of like, which might be helpful because then i'm not getting confused
0: yeah i've, I've, oh. I've been writing scripts for so long when, when i was like a teenager i wanted to i wanted to write novels I, I you know i've always liked writing prose uh and i ended up in the comics industry almost by accident i mean that's not entirely true i mean i was always interested in comics i wrote my dissertation on comics but that part of me that wanted to write prose i kind of I kind of let that fall by the wayside until more recently mm. I've sort of dipped back into it, written a couple of short stories and started writing a novel. Um, and just the freedom, the freedom of being able to of not having to fit everything into a, you know, a panel and a page and an issue, Sure, you know, and yep. the, the, the structure of screen, you know, I like scripts. I like screen, you know, I read screenplays for fun and comic scripts, all the rest of it, but oh man, just that, the freedom of just being able to spend as long as you want in a conversation between characters. hmm Sure, uh, and just the directness of just speaking directly to the reader, without be going, you know, going through the lenses of, you know, all the filter of, you know, artist, colorist, letterer, editor, and then the page, <laughs> the panel, and everything else. It just, it's very freeing. Um, and to, to come back to your multitasking point, I'm, I'm terrible at multitasking, but I also know that if I stay on one thing for too long, I get bored. My brain notes out, and I need something else. For to sure. And what I found with the, the, the novel I'm writing at the moment um, is it's got multiple point of view characters and it's, it's a fantasy novel. Um, so I can jump and like, I can see the whole thing in my head. The whole story is like a sort of 10 hour movie that I could like recite chapter and verse. Um, so I can just jump to the bit I want to write right now. And as I'm doing it mm-hmm. non linear patchwork, whichever bit I want to write, I can just hop into it and just do a bit of that. And then tomorrow might be a completely different bit. Um, which it's probably crazy but like it, it keeps it keeps me on my toes and it, mean, it means it never feels stale it never feels like i'm rolling a boulder up a hill right i can just jump to whichever bit of the hill i want i can jump straight to the top of the mountain you know Like i, I literally wrote the final chapter i, I kind of realized yeah. the final chapter so clearly it's almost like a, a little short epilogue but i saw it so clearly and i knew what the last line of the novel was it's like mm. yeah, i'll write that you know and it kind of feels like i've already reached the top of the mountain and now i'm just Filling in the rest of it, you know, uh, it's it's a nice feeling. But it's very freeing. I also think yeah. more than I can chew by trying to like it's my first novel, right? So I set myself a very tall task by okay, it's like it's got like six different point of view characters, and well, between four and six, some of them might get cut. Um, but it's like set in a completely different world, doesn't mm-hmm. have seasons, and the tides of the sea rise like a thousand feet, and and it's and trying to create like. Four or five, the whole new societies with a whole new, and it's kind of like I should have just written a simple little spy thriller or something. You know, it's kind of a lot. Uh,
1: I, yeah, I mean, but that's a, you know, that's interesting that you you say this because when I first sort of said, "Hey, I'm going to write a book," I sat down and I I plunked away to like a couple chapters of this this novel, which had this idea which I absolutely love, and I just Struggled and struggled and struggled. And I had a really close friend who said to me after like my kvetching with him, he goes, Listen, pick one of your stories that is going to be a short story and write that. I said, I don't want to write a short story. I want to write a novel. He's like, Yeah, just do that. I said, Okay. So I wrote this, this short story, which turned out to be a little long, but I wrote it. I finished it. And he's like, Great. That's fantastic. He's like, Now write, a, write another one. And my other buddy was like, Yeah, write like three or four and you could do a, an anthology. I'm like, Cool. I'm going to write the novel now. So I sat down and wrote a novel, which is like the first of a series, you know, this huge science fiction and fantasy epic thing, which I think is kind of part and parcel to the ADHD brain, which is, okay, cool, but I need to get to this big thing because the big thing is what is going to make me want to come back every single time to the keyboard. So yeah, right. you, you did what you had to do.
0: Yeah, but no, the, the the short story thing is good advice. I mean, like that, it's that's advice I I, I give to other people is because you the satisfaction you get of finishing things, something sort of small and achievable, is true of comics and of, of short stories too. Yep. Um, and I like a, it was a year or two ago. I wrote a couple of short stories for publication, and I just I hyper each one. i Each one I wrote in about a week, um, which is probably quite you know a long time. But I was I've never been more hyper focused. I've never been in such mm-hmm. a flow state as i was writing those short stories and i loved it i just like I, yeah. as soon as i woke up i just grabbed the laptop and i sat in bed i did my backing because i spent like whole days just sat in bed hunched over the keyboard because yeah. getting up and putting my trousers on i'd put i'd lose my train of thought you know mm-hmm. that was a good place to be i was hoping that that would be like uh like the, the new me uh, and then it kind of wore off and i had to go back to doing other stuff to pay the bills and so on but uh, yeah like but the idea of doing an anthology of short stories is something i've been putting a lot of thought into i think that's probably what i should have done before trying to do the huge fantasy epic um and i've got well, a lot of stories, I, you know i've got low, so many stories in my head that i want to write you know? sure uh I, yeah. coming up with like a, a a coherent unified theme for an anthology was something i kind of had been struggling with because i all my stories are in so many different genres and i'm starting to realize that there's an awful lot of creepy kind of horror stories or kind of like you know, horror adjacent stuff in there. A lot of slightly Lovecraftian, but, you know, modern vibe. Imagine like David Fincher doing modern Lovecraft would be the kind of, mm-hmm. t- I think, um, Yeah. of a lot of, the fact that I'm speaking in cinematic terms is probably slightly odd, but like I say, I can, I can see them, you know, I can see them in my head and I can, yeah, there, there's one in particular I really want to do is kind of Lovecraft, you know, or it ends up Lovecraft, but it starts off reading like a Tom Clancy novel like real, okay, cool. real kind of invisible prose, just straight ahead, you know, kind of like very, you know, mundane. Uh, and then, as weird shit starts happening to the characters, one, you know, the, the first-person point of view, as the character starts to mutate, the narrator, the narrator starts to mutate, and as he does so, the prose style mutates along with it.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so yeah, just almost as a, as a writing exercise, it's kind of yeah interesting, uh, an interesting. Well, it's
1: challenge. a POV. It's a POV shift. Yeah, within the character. Exactly. Which is kind of a which is yeah. kind of a unique way of doing and, it.
0: And I came up with some stuff for it that's just deeply, deeply unsettling and disturbing. You know, like when you get into this kind of body horror type stuff, it's kind of like ooh, it's really. I kind of I kind of made myself squirm a little bit with it. I haven't even written the damn thing yet. You know, like yeah, yeah, bits and bobs. You know um but yeah i think and that would yeah i mean the fact that i'm babbling on about it you can tell i'm kind of i'm into it there's some enthusiasm there, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not always the case when you, you know you're, you're doing uh you know other people's stuff you know uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: it's it's comes back to the question of what you say yes to you know.
1: yeah and that's i mean but you know you know most yeah. everyone is not blessed enough to do whatever they want and so we have to work for somebody often so we're not exactly free to do the, the all the things that we need to do internally but um you know it's fun to play with other people's toys too so yeah. you when know, right
0: I mean, i'm very lucky like a, a few years ago i got very jaded with the comics industry and you know, i had a bad experience and i was kind of like what why am i i was miserable like, why am i doing this you know and, um, I was kind of basically ready to sort of walk off in a huff and take my ball home, you know. Um, and, and you know, I've been working on sort of my own, like trying, trying to put more of my effort into my own stories than other people's mm-hmm. since then. Uh, and I was kind of ready to just not bother doing any other franchise stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they came along and offered me the expanse, you know, <laughs> of which I'm a huge, huge nerd um and uh, yeah so like and so that's great because and we just seem to be on the same wavelength so it's it's great i'm really enjoying how did
1: how did that how did that project kind of come into your sphere
0: they just asked it was the editor john moisen of boom studios just out of the blue just dropped me an email saying am i writing you're a fan of the expanse would you be interested in writing a comic and i basically just pulled his arm off saying yes you know like give me you know." Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it's, 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 I'm probably going to jinx it now by saying this, but it's been going really well. Uh, and mm-hmm. like, obviously the, uh, Dan Abraham and Ty Frank, the novelists, um, are kind of like, you know, overseeing the whole thing to make sure I don't kind of like, you know,
1: go off the rails.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. fly into Pluto or whatever the analogy is, but they, they seem to like what I'm doing um i kind of but but it, you know my enthusiasm there because you know it's something i already was a huge fan of and you know mm-hmm. i son into it he's a huge fan of it too we watch the whole thing together um so yeah i kind of feel like i get it i kind of feel like i know mm-hmm. what i'm doing um doesn't mean that you know i'm perfect and you know, i'm listening to advice and course corrections and stuff but yeah like i feel like i'm you know I know what's appropriate and I know the characters and I know the voices. So I kind of, I feel very confident, I guess, is what I'm saying. And I'm enjoying myself. That's story. cool. You can always tell when the writer's enjoying themselves. Um, <laughs> sure. And that's not always been the case in the past.
1: There's a, there's a sort of i <clears throat> I'm going to bring in some music. I like music metaphors too. Um, there, you know, the, what sort of always made Eddie Van Halen one of the greatest guitarists in the world beyond his virtuosity was this sense of swing to his music. And I think that's indicative of the joy he had in, you know, sort of playing this music. And I think when a writer is in that zone, there's this level of swing to the music, to the, to the, to the words that are coming out. However, you know, whatever the medium of writing it is. Um, did, So, you, I mean, you've worked on, you know, sort of like event stuff, like with Marvel um, where you've had to sort of uh, fit within the framework of the, of the machine uh, for the, you know, for the season was the expanse kind of like that where they were, was boom or were the writers saying, okay, well, here's kind of the big notes now go for it, Andy, or were they were like, what do you got?
0: Yeah, more the latter. Um, okay. Yeah. No, it was, I, I can't quite believe how much creative freedom. I wow. Believe. Um, but it was—it's an odd one because I don't know how familiar uh, your listeners might be with *The Expanse*. But it's the TV show, which about six seasons, is based on the first six novels of *The Expanse*, and a fairly faithful adaptation. Um, they haven't filmed the final three novels. You know, I'm sure they would love to at some point. You know, but um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but that's kind of like you know, everybody's got their fingers crossed, but nobody knows anything yet. So you know, hopefully one day. Um, but between book six and seven there's a 30- year time gap before, Right. like these big epochal events happen in the final trilogy so that th- so but you know in book seven the characters are 30 years older than they were before so it's quite a significant shift um, and so for the for the comic the brief was wide open but they said basically said well it's set during that 30-year time gap. what do you got right and I was, okay well that's interesting. Because all of the, the major sort of antagonists they'd had in the first six se- seasons of the show had been dealt with. And the new mm-hmm. antagonists who, you know, turn up in book seven, you know, the final trilogy, around. haven't appeared yet. So it's kind of, yeah. okay, so does that mean nothing happens? You know, so if, you know, nothing significant happens, then it's just going to feel like filler, you know, it's going to feel very mm-hmm. skippable. So what I tried to do was figure out, okay, I'll, having read the books um knowing where it's all going i was trying to figure out a way to use the kind of the narrative momentum that's already built been built up by the first six seasons um and then use that to kind of catapult us through this next 30 years in a way that's heading in the direction of book seven but without spoiling what happens in book seven.
2: <laughs> right I'm, yeah.
0: I'm trying to talk around it here because i don't want to spoil it for people who might not no 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 it. of course because everybody should check it out it's awesome um yeah so i'm trying to like some picking up you know picking up all the leftover toys you know mm-hmm. uh, and then trying to use as, ma- not as many of them as possible but the, the ones that are useful to me um for my purposes like basically yeah originally i was just pitching for like four issues the idea was going to be mm-hmm. that there would be three different stories by three different writers and i had like a take that would make sense coming short fairly shortly after season six and i thought it was just a strong hook you know with new a new a new antagonist a new, a new mm-hmm. situation but based on what's gone before using this kind of heading for book seven idea uh and i i was and it, it's very me I, I don't really want to spoil it but it's yeah okay it, like i say you can tell when i'm having fun it's it's my kind of thing and um yeah and you know they they just they liked where i was coming from and said, "Well, how would you like to write all twelve issues?" Uh, nice. And I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> so I, did, I guess <laughs> it means that, yeah, I kind of, like I say, I kind of like, I, I'm in my comfort zone. You know, I know how mm-hmm. I know how this works. One of the, my favourite things about doing this work on the Expanse is that I understand how the world works. You know, it's got. The, you can tell that the writers have a similar worldview to my own about the nature of power. And and just and human nature generally, like even if it's set two right. hundred years in the future, people are still people, and politics is still politics, and war totally. is still war. And you know, we the human animal is the same, and we still make the same mistakes. It's it's not a, a utopian Star Trek type universe, but it's also not yeah. some dystopian post apocalyptic. Well, some of it is, but you know, you know what I mean. It's it's just it's a, it's about people. That's why they don't have yeah. robots in the show because robots are just machines. We don't care. We want to tell a story about people. Um, but I, but the foundations of it, like I understand the limitations of the physics, and you know, understanding how space travel works and how long it takes to get everywhere, and what you know, kind of weapons they do or don't have, it, everything makes mm-hmm. sense. And that feels like you've got a very strong foundation to build on and actually tell a human story. Whereas whereas I didn't grow up reading superhero comics, so coming into that as an outsider, I don't really feel like, even though I've been doing this for twenty years now, I don't really understand what the ground rules are. Because they kind of, oh, okay. partly, you know, partly because they'll just, you know, make stuff up for whatever they need this month kind of thing. And partly because the continuity is endlessly contradicting itself and getting retconned and changed. And I can keep track of this stuff, you know. And uh, There's like 17 really? different versions of every character, you know. And it's just baffling. So, yeah, so some of those event comics I've done for superheroes, I, I don't think I was the right guy for the job, you know. Um, I was. I. I don't understand how this world is supposed to make sense, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And like, you know, in, in Daredevil, part of my brief was that, you know, the, the hand, this organization of evil ninjas who are Daredevil's arch enemy were going to take over Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. Uh, I'm like, okay. Why? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I still can't answer that question. Um, Motivation doesn't matter. Yeah, and it's like, and they want Daredevil to be the leader of the hand, like, why? Right. So I, I could nev- never figure out a satisfactory answer to these questions. They're like, well, you know, the, the Avengers literally live down the road from here. What are they doing during this story? They're like, oh, they're sure. doing else.
1: They're why? busy.
0: We don't know. Yeah, it's, it's uh, okay, I guess. You know, so, and I just, yeah, I, I couldn't, I'm, not, I'm sure, I'm not saying this is not Marvel's fault. This is my fault. I, I failed to come up with right. Sufficiently compelling answers to these questions that I was asking. Um, so, okay. a writer would have done a better job, I think, or a more a more okay. well suited writer. All
1: right. So, this is this is this is nitty gritty, kind of you know, sort of in the dirt kind of thinking. But what you are describing is the struggle, from my perspective, not of someone who's writing a monthly comic book for a, an existing IP but someone who is creating something from whole cloth. So when creating something from whole cloth, like a novel or your own comic book, you have to have an existing, you know, ecosphere and everything. Once we're like, we're saying everything's connected. So the connections that you are referring to are, I need to resolve the issue as to why the Avengers aren't swooping in and taking care of this problem. Like, Is there a financial contract which keeps them from things that, you know, are below their pay grade? Like, what is the reason being? Because all this kind of stuff, like, so when you're writing, like, you know, for me, when I'm sitting and writing, you know, anything, I hit these little mental marks and I go, I need to make an answer for this. Because a reader who is smarter than me (laughs) is going to ask this question while they're getting to this point.
0: That's the thing. They're always smart. Right.
1: They've got all you have have
0: to think about it as well. They've got
1: all the, yeah. So you have to go, you have to have that solution for the satisfaction. Without that solution, the satisfaction is missing. Now, I'm not saying that's for everybody. And maybe the readers reading your run never even questioned why the hand wanted this and why the Avengers didn't come in, because it is a bit, you know, de rigueur the Avengers don't show up and solve Daredevil's problems every issue so okay let's move forward you know um yeah I but the, the history, I get what you're saying
0: it's, it's de rigueur that you know the Avengers or Superman don't swoop in and solve everybody's problems but what, why don't they right well, like I, I'm always the guy who's asking yeah, but why? But that's
1: a that's a comic right there
0: and like, eventually you just hit this barrier of like oh well it, it's just because that's not what happens in superhero comics
1: Mm-hmm.
2: like some
0: of the best superhero comics are by people who do ask why like alan moore or grant morrison you know like mm-hmm. look at miracle man you know i read yep. that when it was still called marvel man you know but it's like he was like well if superman existed then he really would try and solve all the earth's problems
2: okay mm-hmm.
0: how would he try and do that you know it's basically going to turn it into a benign dictatorship you know that's kind yep. of a big deal You know, like yeah so let's tell a story that is a big deal but whereas in superhero comics, you know, you've got to have the illusion of change. Look, You've got to make it look mm-hmm. like they're safe today, but they're not actually changing the world, you know. Uh, so, yeah, right. I kind of, it doesn't really make sense to me. You know, like the, the, the characters are so powerful. I mean, like something like Marvel Civil War kind of touched on this kind of regulation aspect, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like, well, you know, you're really in a situation where basically superheroes are super weapons, you know uh but they're just allowed to just do what they want it's it, it would it would i guess what i'm saying is it would change it would change the way the world works if they existed and mm-hmm. that could be a really interesting story but they don't do that it's just kind of oh no and you caught the bank robber or something either that or it's this endless cosmic churn of well, we've saved the universe again we've saved the multiverse again but i can't relate to that because i don't understand what the stakes are because they constantly keep erasing and recreating universes all the time anyway, to the point where it's banal.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think, you know, there's, yeah. And and I think, you know, we have this, you know, there's this existing structure of these characters, you know, Superman, name any character. And there's always a, every day there's a new person who loves this character. You know, that's how, that's how it operates. So it is this reoccurring revenue stream. So you don't want to mess that revenue stream up too much, but what the questions that you're asking right now are the spaces where Alan Moores and Grant Morrison's and Mark Millar's step in and say, "Okay, I'm going to create and you know some some object that is similar to all this other stuff, and I'm going to answer these questions. I'm going to make I'm going to make a stage play, and here's what happens. And I think that really is resonant." For so many readers, inside and outside of comic books, because it answers the questions why people don't read comic books, and it is the ultimate what if for the people who do.
0: The thing that really surprises me is why comics are superhero comics choose to be so mired in continuity. I mean, I know that it's partly like fan service, because there's this collector Mm -hmm. mentality. and, you know, the, the fans like to know the minutiae of these connections, you know, between all these different stories and characters. But that's also very alienating for new readers. You know, like back in the day, you know, Stan and Jack would just do a done-in-one issue that, you know, you can go and pick up a, an issue of whatever, and, you you know, you don't have to have read 40 years of continuity to understand what the heck is going on, you know. Um, and if you look at the, the trade paperback bestsellers, all, you know after 20, 30 years, all of the bestsellers are still self-contained stories. You know, look at like Batman Year One or Watchmen or something like this. You know, it's like you can put that in anybody's hand and they can read that and enjoy it, you know. I do not for the life of me understand why they don't do more stories like that that are accessible for new readers, especially Marvel, given that they've had well-deserved, huge success with their movies. So, you know, as a parent taking a kid to a comic shop, like, you know, my son loves Spidey, you know, or my son loves the Avengers. What would you recommend? Like, oh, well, here's one. I don't know. It, the continuity is always so impenetrable in that stuff. It's where, Where's mm-hmm. the equivalent of, of Batman Year One for these kind of things? I mean, there's a few of them out there, but I, I would like to see more of that.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I think that standalone I, mean, I yeah, I mean, because I, I don't know, maybe people do, but I certainly don't think of, I mean, I love Crisis on Infinite Earths. It was a pretty, you know, groundbreaking event, but I don't pick it. It's not even in my top 20 of things that I go like, you know, hey, make a list of your favorite comic book stuff. Like, it's not there. It's great. But there's so many things that are far more independent on their own creation that don't tie into everything that i love much more
0: it's funny you should say crisis because like that's that's tangentially what got me into american comics i didn't tend i didn't grow up reading american comics i read kind of 2008 mm-hmm. and warrior in the uk and uh i just happened to see uh, an issue of swamp thing in my local news agents and it was it had a, yeah, literally it- a pile of American comics on the counter that he hadn't put on the shelf yet and the Swamp Thing was at the top and it was this really lurid title that actually attracted me because like, you know I like horror but I wasn't really interested in superheroes I'm like this looks really lurid uh, I'm going to check that out so I just kind of flipped through it and I ended up just buying it on like an impulse buy and I it was written by Alan Moore right I didn't know mm-hmm. who Alan Moore I was reading his stuff in 2000 AD at the time and really enjoying it but I wasn't I was too young to really be paying attention to you know who was Responsible for creating stuff. But I read that issue of Swamp Thing and it blew my head off. It was the Crisis on Infinite Earth's crossover, right? Where John Constantine right. is Swamp Thing that all of these different realities are colliding together and it's just super crazy. And I had no idea what was going on, but I knew that they had this chain smoking, sarcastic English bloke taking the piss out of Batman in it amidst this mm-hmm. multiverse calamity. Like, that's cool. I want more of this, please. And that's what sent me off to go and My first—I guess I was probably at fifteen at the time—that sent me off to discover Forbidden Planet to go looking for back issues, and I sort of put together all you know the the whole run of of to date of of Alan Moore Swamp Thing stuff, and that was that was the thing. I man, I loved that comic so much. Like that—that was oh, that's what taught me at the age of fifteen. Oh, this is what comics can be, you know. Mm -hmm. And this is when I started paying attention to who oh who's actually writing and drawing this stuff, and then realizing that oh this alan moore guy he's the guy who's writing halo jones and dr and Quinch in 2000 ad oh and he's the guy who right. wrote that man and beef vendetta and warrior it's like this is all the same guy you know it's like ah people do this you know people do this for a living i could do that yeah i'm not saying i'm alan moore because clearly i'm not but you know what i mean it's kind of like it's one of those it was a, it was a really it was a really formative experience for me kind of Putting it all together like that, but yes, but like to come back to your point, like Crisis on Infinite Earths is not there's <laughs> not necessarily the book I would you know recommend to a nine year old to get them into superhero comics, you know, because like oh, if I read that, I wouldn't no. know what the hell is going on. I don't know whose characters are, you know.
1: No, I'd no, you saying, have to be yeah. entrenched to be able to enjoy it. Otherwise, it's just abstract. It's a whole bunch of nothing, and that's I mean, and I think that's what the joy of those single issues or you know four issue six issue arcs like to me those are magic because they are these self-contained stories and you know the more that can happen the more readers are going to be thrilled i i that's my that's always been my philosophy um i I I don't know i mean
0: i four issues is a great is a great format because it just fits very neatly into the kind of narrative structure that we're used to from kind of you know tv and films and all the rest of it you know it's mm-hmm. a beginning a middle, and an end you know stories have structure you can argue about three act structure or five act or seven act or whatever it is but at the end of the day a story you know even the simplest story like a joke has got a beginning a middle and an end right yep and that lends itself very neatly to this you know say three four whatever issue format you know um and i think people just respond to that natural shape of the story. Whereas mm-hmm. when it's just this endless churn of continuity with it, ev- everything is super important all the time, even though it doesn't need to be connected. And it just, it feels like this kind of quantum foam of chaos. So like, I, I, that's it. That isn't the story. That's just a bunch of stuff happening, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, I mean, I will always cherish all the comics that I read as a kid. Even the the ones that probably are not so great, but the the experience was fantastic as a child. But eventually, that wears off, and you want uh, something with a little more meat.
0: And I don't even know if it has to be meat. Like you know, I'm I'm, I'm all for just fun escapism. You know, give me that. Yeah. yeah, I'm not trying to be a snob about it. Like I'm not saying like, it has to be deep and meaningful. I just I'm just looking for fun times. You know, but, yeah. Uh, but I just wanted to make you care. Uh, and if 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 everything if the universe is always exploding all the time, after a while it just becomes noise, you know. Like
3: mm-hmm.
0: I was talking to my my friend Alex Paternall about this the other day. Um, we were talking about the movie Die Hard, the first one. Yeah. The scene where John McClane's pulling bits of broken glass. Out of the sole of his foot and the whole audience is just mm-hmm. kind of wincing with pain and just really empathizing with him you know because of the and it's he's physically doing this whilst having a conversation with another guy about like what a, how bad he feels about being such a terrible husband you know and right. it's kind of like you really feel that and you feel that much more strongly than a lot of the big cgi battle over new york to save the universe kind of stuff you know in in movies because after a while it's kind of, it doesn't feel real there's nothing to empathize with there it's, it's it's too big to connect with somehow it's like you know right. in a war movie you can't empathize with every victim of war simultaneously it's too big it's too much no. you need to focus on the actual characters that we're following you know mm-hmm. um, like and use them as kind of representatives to for you know for whatever the, the you know the filmmaker's opinion about war may be you know um and i kind of feel like you know maybe superhero stories i think i'm probably talking more about movies here than i am about comics because you know (laughs) the comics do they do focus on character and I'm, i'm being too dismissive of them but I think maybe one of the reasons that people are starting to cool a little on the Marvel movies is because it is getting a bit too into the cosmic stuff and it is a bit too much saving the universe all the time. And I think, you know, we care we more about, I don't know, I care more about, you know, Peter Parker giving the guy's stolen bike back or something. kind of There's a little right. human moment. I think it's kind of maybe lost touch a little bit with that stuff. Uh, and if, you know, yeah. if everything's CGI galactic all of the time, after a while, we just tune out, you know? Like I was saying about the expanse, yeah. you know, that's why we don't have robots because we, we, let's tell stories about people, you know? And it's, I feel like it's maybe, maybe losing a little bit of that.
1: Yeah, that, no, that's interesting about the whole, when you brought the idea about the robots and, and I, you know, I didn't ever make that connection and I totally, like, identify with it because, and I think that, that you know, you know, tying the superhero thing is that if the characters become just sort of like automatons in their action, like they just do the thing that they're supposed to do and nobody questions anything and does the thing, they become robots. So we don't really have this sort of connect, you know, connective tissue. But when we have, you know, Steve Rogers with a little notebook, writing, Getting, getting sort of tips and, you know, like, Hey, you need to definitely check out this television show or whatever the thing okay. is. It, it's, it makes it so brilliant because like, that's the care, like, that's the character, like his character is a man at a time. And yeah. the you know, more we can have that man at a time in his clash with 1940s idealism mixed with 20th 21st century you know idealism like there's an interesting that's an interesting culture clash
0: yeah no th- that's a really good example i love i, I love I cap's notebook and i love the fact that like when they released the film in different territories that the stuff he was noting down mm-hmm. was different in each territory yeah, yeah. Uh, that, was, that was beautiful um but it's like yeah no, this, is, this is good stuff sean connery i know this was one of them um but the other thing about <laughs> Cap, this comes back to my, my problem with like Long form, chaotic storytelling, like it feels a bit soap opera-ish. You know, it, it, it feels like it's all filler because it's unstructured. It, you know, big picture unstructured. Whereas Steve Rogers, that story spanning many films, but that story has an arc. His character story mm-hmm. has an arc, going from you know the wimpy kid in New York to the the hero fighting the Nazis in World War II, and then to the man out of time, where suddenly they're kind of the the moral clarity of fighting the Nazis is suddenly muddied by this gray area of, you know, black ops and dirty tricks and, and all the rest of it. And he's suddenly, you know, wondering, do I belong here? Kind of thing. You know? And mm-hmm. I thought it was, it was a stroke of genius to take that very idealistic uh, character and put him into that morally murky world of espionage, you know, and moral yeah. compromise and so on. That was great. And then, of course, he stands up and does the right thing because he's Steve Rogers. Um, and then finally, you know, in Endgame, we we get to see him kind of like you know, cap, so to speak, his career. You know, we get to see him as an old man, and he's kind of, he's finally got what he always wanted, and he's settled down, and he's like,
2: yeah, I'm good. Like, yeah, there you
0: go. Yeah. that felt that felt like you know, The Dark Knight Returns, in a way that you know, stories should be allowed to end, and like mm-hmm. it felt like that story. So it had it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, and yeah. but in, you can't do that in comics because. You know, like even The Dark Knight Returns has to be a standalone story. It can't be part of continuity because they need Mm -hmm. to publish Batman next month. You know what I mean? So hence we come back to this illusion of change, you know. But stories, a story is change. A story is literally about how our character changes, you know, from,
1: you know, that's the character arc, like yeah, without exactly. like,
0: like Frodo in the beginning of Lord of the Rings is not the same as Frodo at the end of Lord of the Rings, you know, but once, no. once he's, you know, got rid of the ring and he hits the gray Havens, then, you know, we're pretty much done, you know, we're not going to go and see his yeah. adventures in the West. You know? The,
1: the adventures of Frodo, Frodo just back. hanging out. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. We're not watching that.
0: Or something, Yeah. So yeah, and so you know, I get it. It's a business, you know, because you know fans want more of the stuff they're fans of. I get, I get it. Um, yeah, it also makes it, and but that's another reason where I would like to see more standalone stories that don't worry about continuity. You know, where we
2: can yeah. just
0: do the thing. You know, and and you
1: know, do you, yeah. <laughs> here's do you do you know if the I, I, suspect, I suspect, I suspect yes, but do you know that? The black label stuff is out of continuity for DC. Like, are they just like? I
0: think like, it probably varies from book to book. But yeah, they're, they're, yeah, I think generally yeah. speaking, that's the idea. I, I, Which still I think, think it makes it. I, I wish they hadn't killed Vertigo, because there was a lot of interesting original stuff that came out of Vertigo. Some of my all-time favorite comics. Totally. Um, yeah. So I kind of grieved when the, when when they canned that. But yeah, the idea of black label is that it's yeah you don't have to worry too much about uh, continuity and so You can just have
1: which you know, I think like, is brilliant. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I would just I just miss the variety and the weirdness of Vertigo. You know.
1: Oh yeah, dude. It was. It, I mean, it, it, you know, two things. It it brought weird into the mainstream for American comics, which was great. But it also was the a tsunami. Of European talent and English talent coming over to the states, which and Scottish forever arrive. changed okay sure all, all the, <laughs> all, and maybe 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 a Welsh person or two, maybe possibly um and I think that made I made a huge change for the perception of comics because I think you know American comics was pretty insulated up to that point.
0: Yeah, maybe so. I mean, it's, it's a lot of a lot of the writers, at least, were were kind of like X ad guys, you know. Uh, and I yep. think 2000AD was a great kind of uh, incubator um, for not not just kind of like just raw talent, but also that it had that slightly skewed uh, anti-authoritarian, just kind of oddball, darkly kind of vibe to it, you know. Um, and and also it was extremely violent as well. It still is one of the reasons i love it um yeah i think you know you can see it was kind of you could because i'd been following a lot of those writers and artists you know from the early 80s through 2018 warrior and stuff like that uh, yeah i I could see the kind of that kind of that thread continuing into what became vertigo you know Uh, Mm
2: -hmm. like
0: i say like putting together oh this is alan moore who's writing swamp thing and then obviously swamp thing gave rise to hellblazer and vertigo and Obviously, Sandman was another big part of it. I think Neil Gaiman is probably uh, of all of those guys who were kind of like part of that charge. I mean, he—I think he did like a, a short story or something in two thousand eight, but he was never. Mo- most of these guys were were had done more stuff for two thousand eight, whereas Neil had kind right. of followed it followed his own path. Um, but yeah, but it was. It was, it was fun times, but it was, it was yeah. the fact that it was people I was already reading and, 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 and checking out their work in British comics already. And it was just really nice to be able to follow them to Vertigo and actually see them lauded and given opportunities to just, you know, do crazy stuff in public. It was amazing.
1: Yeah. It was yeah. It was, it was hey, golden days, man. They were golden days. So you, we, we touched on the idea of the, um, you know, you're you're talking retconning and characters and entrenchment and all that kind of stuff but you've worked on a character who has been reworked and reworked for 60 plus years now and that is James Bond okay. um <laughs> so how do you like how do you lock into into that world um and I ask selfishly because it is one of my all-time favorite characters from the novels Love the, you know, I love the movies, but I really think it's great. And he got to work with, um, Mark. Uh, did you work with Mark on some of that stuff? Which mark are you talking monkey about? man? Um, <laughs> why am I blanking monkey Mark? Why am I blanking his last name? I'm going to edit this so sweetly. No one will. On um, <laughs> um, um, why do I blank on Mark's name? Hold on to two seconds. Bump, but a bump. Lamming, Mark no, Lamming. I did not work with Mark Lamming. He did do. He did, oh, he did. Didn't do any covers. Okay. So how did you? I mean, how did you lock into James Bond?
0: They asked, and I said yes. Yeah, and it's just like ninety okay. percent of what I've done has just been like you know I get a phone call or an email from an editor saying hey would you be interested in writing so and so and sometimes it's like I guess and sometimes it's like hell yeah and James Bond was one of yeah. those hell yeah. You know, especially because it was following straight on from Warren Ellis, um, who cool. you know, uh, yeah. Um, the Bond thing. I obviously, I've grown up watching the movies and all the rest of it. Um, the thing that interested me about the take for the comics was that they wanted they wanted it set in the present day, but they wanted it based on the character of Bond from the novels rather than. <laughs> character of the Bond from the movies i'm like okay well that in itself is inherently interesting because the novels are so clearly kind of post-war cold war um mm-hmm. and today we're supposedly post-cold war so it's like you know without the you know smirsh kind of looming over everything um and i had been paying attention to what russia had been up to in ukraine this was back in, like, 2015, 2016, you know, sure. this time, you know, the invasion of Crimea and so on. And I've been reading about all of their cyber ops and dirty tricks and propaganda and espionage and stuff. And this was way before it kind of, like, was as big as it is now in the public awareness. I mean, this was pre-Trump, you know. Um, yeah. And I and I was thinking, you know what, it's time to bring back Smirsch um, because, you know... <laughs> Fleming had thought that the Cold War was going to end, you know, in sort of in the back in the '60s. So he was like, you know, well, right. we should play Smirsh with Spectre in the movies, you know. So like, but in the novels, like the first three villains are connected to Smirch in one way or another.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the Russian, you know, which is like Russian, you know, black art. So I thought you know, one of the most interesting challenges, uh, or not not interesting challenges, but like one of the things that I found most interesting with the idea of how to retool that. Threat for the present day, and everything is very interconnected. And you know, it's it hadn't occurred to me consciously, but saying it now, I realize that there's an element of the Steve Rogers in Winter Soldier kind of vibe here in terms of taking a character who was, you know, like came from a place of you know moral absolutes, and then dropping them into a much more complicated and morally grey world. You know, so totally. the way I chose to write Bond, I wrote, I, I deliberately and consciously wrote him with a slightly old-fashioned manner and a slightly old-fashioned dialogue. Um, uh, but I, partly because I kind of grew up watching these old movies of Bond, where you know, you know, he wears a hat and says "Happy Landings, old chap," and things like that. You know, but partly right. because you know, like I'd, I'd like this idea of him being a bit of a man out of time, being slightly old-fashioned. You know, still fighting the good fight, even though everything's now murky and compromised and complicated because sometimes you just need james bond to go and throw a spanner in the works you know what i mean mm-hmm. uh, and, and just and the combination of and the thing that makes him such an iconic character is the the sharp contrast between the kind of the the suave lounge lizard and the brutal killer you know yeah and the fact that you just shift from one to another in the blink of an eye uh, that's an always mm-hmm. an interesting contrast you know it's kind of like bruce Wayne to batman but in the same scene, you know. Um, yeah, he's both at once. You know, he's Bruce Wayne and Batman. Right. Um, yeah, it doesn't matter yeah. what he's wearing. Um, you know, and I, I, I love, I love a good thriller. I love a good caper. I love a good action scene. You know, so it just it was like, yeah, no, this is this is my wheelhouse. I mean, you can tell from reading the um, losers, like one of the first things I ever got published. That was twenty years ago now. Um, but you can tell that, you know, I'm channeling a childhood love with James Bond and that stuff. You know?
1: to- oh, yeah. No, no. When you say that, it's totally, it's there. Absolutely.
3: Yeah.
0: And, you know, my, yeah. my love of a good action set piece as well. You know, I, I love I love good action choreography. There's a lot of action mm-hmm. movies are bad movies. But a, yeah, it comes back to the James Cameron thing again, actually. Totally. You know, like Cameron or Spielberg, you know, they it's not just that they, you know, like make fun family movies or whatever. It's like, they really know how to direct and edit action, you know? Um, yeah. And it's often done badly in comics, you know, they like in comics, often it's kind of, you know, rather than less is more, it's kind of more is more, you know, like throwing buildings mm-hmm. at it or whatever, but I, I'm big on the kind of understanding spatial geography and choreography in a fight scene. I want to know yep. exactly what the stakes are and like, you know, where the gun is. So Somebody kicks a gun out of somebody's hand. I want to know where it ends up yep, and then how go to get it and how many bullets are left in it. And, you know, cause I want it to be that kind of boom, 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 boom. I, I call it crunchy storytelling rather than smooth. Um, like it's butter <laughs> or something. Yeah. Cause those crunchy moments, it's the building up to a big set piece and then making that set piece really sing, you know, I'm, um, mm-hmm. I think back, you know, I used to do it too much, like with the losers, because I was, you know, I was, a, I was young and foolish and had no idea what the hell I was doing. I was always terrified of boring the reader, like, you know, like something needs to explode on mm-hmm. every page kind of thing. Right. Um, and it's probably kind of exhausting and makes it feel quite superficial, you know. Um, nowadays, I, like writing The Expanse, I love these characters so much, I just want to let them talk. You know, I just mm-hmm. like I've written a, a scene that takes place in one room between two characters. It's just dialogue, and it's like I'm writing radio. It's like okay, I need to. I know I'm going uh-huh. to have a lot of <laughs> because it's a comic. It's not radio, but yeah. at the same time, it's like, but I just want to let them talk. You know, and there isn't any action in mm-hmm. it. You know, at least the first. You know, the first the, the bit I'm writing, the issue I'm writing, at the moment. Um. So yeah, I kind of need to get back that that kind of twenty something kid who was like, you know blow some helicopters up, you know what I mean? But like, you know, so, so coming back to James Bond, it was, you, you know, you get to do both. You you know, that that's the fun bit. You get to do the, you know, the, the suave lounge lizard and you get to do the international intrigue and then you get to blow stuff up real good, you know? So it's like, yeah, that's my happy place. And I think, you know, hide a little bit of a political point in there as well without anybody noticing, then great. Um, Slip it in yeah, there. It just hits all the buttons for me.
1: Did you... So I mean, this is because it's different. It's so different, you know, than with with standing comic book properties where, I mean, I don't think people are really trying to like, hey, I I want to bring as much Stan Lee dialogue into my Fantastic Four comic book as possible, unless you're Alex Ross doing his his love of his love book to them. But did you? I mean, were you looking at the novels and and really trying to like pull? Fleming's kind of qualities in, in dialogue and a
0: little bit, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because, like, Bond is such, such an iconic cinema character, like, the, we, mm-hmm. we think of film Bond as being Bond, you know, and there's so yeah. much kind of iconography that's got kind of clustered around that, you know, the Martinis and the Aston Martin and the Wolf of PPK, and like 90% of that wasn't actually in the books. You know, no, no. in the books, you know, he drinks bourbon and he's got like a Colt 45 or something in his glove box or whatever it is, you know, in the first book. And it doesn't pick it's up. It's a the, Beretta the
1: 25. Movies. That was the, that they, was the big one was the Beretta 25. The variety
0: of different guns. It's not like, it's not fetishized mm-hmm. the way it is in the movies. Right. You know? Like if, if he used a different gun in a, in a movie, fans would get upset, you know, it's yes. because they think that he's defined by the choice of weapon, and it's not. he's defined by his character, you know. Um mm-hmm. I've drifted off the point. What was your question? Well,
1: no, the, 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 it, was, it was the idea of what you were drawing from Fleming into your, like, do, say, a dialogue or world of it.
0: Losing my train of thought is another ADHD
1: trade. Um, if there's two of us, we might be able to stay on track.
0: <laughs> <laughs> One of the main things I've, I've pulled from the novels was, and I reread, the, not all of them, but the first few that Fleming Estate very kindly, sent me a whole box of paperbacks. Um, oh sweet! With a sense of uh, resilience, uh, which felt very post-war, um, mm-hmm. there was rather than being you know the toughest guy in the room in terms of you know beating up the bad guys or whatever, there was this sense that he could just quietly endure hardship.
2: Yeah, whether mm. it's
0: being, you know being the famous torture scene from Casino Royale or being dragged across a coral reef, um, or you know crawling through a the rocket exhaust tube from a launch missile launch center or whatever it is, you know, there's there's these kind of feats of endurance he has to just suffer yep. through, but he doesn't give up. And it's that kind of resilience that keeps him going. Um, mm-hmm. And that, like, considering, like, they were written in the early, those early novels were written in the early 50s when, you know, like Britain was still under rationing and this kind of stuff. I think that that, that was, it was that very British kind of stiff upper lip just the only way out is through kind of feeling to it so there was a bit of that to it and there's also the fact that you know people make a lot of the fact that you know James Bond is a stone cold killer with no conscience or whatever I'm like that's not true like the novels do give you a glimpse into his inner life and his sense of moral mm-hmm. outrage at the things that the villains are trying to do you know it doesn't really go overboard with it because it's self-evident that those people are evil and he is trying to stop mm-hmm. them not because following orders but because he thinks they are wrong and morally repugnant and he's disgusted by them you know so like yeah, yeah he knows right from wrong you know he's not a robot he's not the, yeah he's not the terminator the punisher or something so yeah so like but a lot of that stuff is like i say i prefer understatement to overstatement you know so i would rather yeah. just hint at things and let the reader put it together for themselves you know but it, it, the fact is it should be self-evident you know you, well, you yeah, think I mean, that, we're now living in an age where, you know, pe- you know, some people have a problem understanding that the empire are the bad guys in Star Wars. And it's like, if you <laughs> have this explained to you, you know, how much, how much more simplistic could it be, you know, but here we are.
1: Yeah. Well, the, it, it, you know, it's, you were talking about Bond, uh, you know, as a sort of a human, you know, and, and in the books, like, you know, we have this sort of, sort of um, you know, martini drinking bond that we see in, in cinema, but like alcohol kind of was like this analgesic for him. Like it was a painkiller along with a way for him to kind of cope.
0: Yeah. But, and he, he would happily pop amphetamines every now and then, you know, when he needs yeah, a little.
1: Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it was, it was interesting how Fleming would, you know, make this man like, And and your endurance factor. I mean, he just had to grind it through, and so he was using substances to get his way through these things, which was really an interesting kind of side to the character. I mean, he's just the job has to get done in one way or the other. Uh, I I appreciated when they brought um, when they did the the new versions with Daniel Craig, how they really focused on his character trying to turn every situation into a straight line like how do i take this complicated thing and turn it into a straight line solution and i think that was a really strong
0: example of that my favorite example of that was like and it really was like a declaration of intent um was Mm -hmm. during the foot chase at the beginning of casino royale where this, you know yeah, the, the, the guys who parkour through the building yeah. trying to get away from it and like how, how the hell is james bond gonna catch up with that and then he just drives a bulldozer through the fence you know like
2: for yeah, sure that, that's yeah the
0: one. yeah like and that's the perfect yeah. example of that straight ahead thing you're talking about just like yeah it just goes he mm-hmm. just goes through the wall you know and that was yep. like yep yeah, that's he is. one of my favorite bonded moments ever was uh, was daniel craig and it's where it's i can't I, I, i've mixed the films all up but it's it's the one that begins with the. A, a chase across the roof of the train it's the one where Money Penny ends up accidentally shooting him um, okay sure he's, telling, he's got to get into the train and he sort of jumps into a digger that's on the back of the train and he uses it to like rip open the, yes. the roof of the train and then he leaps into the, the ripped open carriage as everybody's screaming around him and he just stands and he just adjusts his cufflinks you know? yeah you know and it's
2: mm-hmm. like it's just like, yeah.
0: yeah that's what makes that's what makes it James Bond rather than just you know the other guy it's perfect it's those little yeah, moments that that's it. the thing like you say it's the same thing yeah. i was saying before it's the contrast between the kind of the brutal killer and the suave tuxedo guy You know and the I mean? gentleman yeah exactly
1: yeah yeah, I, know. I, it, yeah I i, I was super appreciated how they really tried to define that character in those in those aspects i i think the personal history stuff—I don't—I don't think I needed that for the character because I felt that was kind of distracting from the sort of the eternal bondness of the character. But I still enjoyed those movies immensely.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think like
1: they
0: they they are all really well made. I think that they keep tripping over themselves with the scripts, you know, because Casino Royale was so good, and like who could mm-hmm. like. you know they just made it a card game for the whole second act you know like and they pulled it off they just made it really tense like i didn't think that was doable but they nailed it you know but then uh, the the subsequent films there's an awful lot of plot holes you know like i mean skyfall looks amazing it's really well directed and the cinematography is incredible but, like, why wasn't the whole of the SAS waiting for the bad guys, at, you know, in Scotland? In any sense, it doesn't have, there's no reason for this to be home alone. You know, you've got the head of MI6, you know, like, and they know the bad guys are coming for them. It's like, I yeah, I'm so, uh, there's, there's always that little voice in the back of my head when I'm watching these movies. Like, why don't they just, whatever, you know.
1: But it's Andy, right? you're back.
0: Like you know, especially with the hardest thing in something like Bond is like you have this obligatory scene where he's captured by the bad guys and he's he's going to be tortured or whatever, and then he's going to escape and everything's going to explode. And sometimes it feels a little cursory, you know. It's kind of like, why have you seen um, Austin Powers? Sure, There's a great scene in Austin Powers where they're having dinner. Like Austin Powers is having dinner with Doctor Evil. You know, it's basically a riff on the scene from Doctor No. And Doctor Evil's son Scott Evil is kind of like, why are we having dinner? Why don't we just shoot him in the head? You know, it's like, no, we have to put him in the easily escapable, slow-moving death machine. It's like, no, see, I've got a gun in my room. I'll get him. Kill him. We call. Cool. You know, no. And when I'm writing any any of this kind of stuff, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, why doesn't the bad guy just shoot him in the head? Right. right. So I always try yep. to write very smart, ruthless villains, right? Because it really bugs me when villains act like idiots. The hero's got to be outmatched. The hero's got to be mm-hmm. an otherwise. Otherwise, it's just bullying, you know. So, yeah, so, and it comes back to, like, you know what, I think Fleming must have asked himself this question, like, why don't I just shoot James Bond in the head? And it's because mm-hmm. he's being tortured for information or whatever it is, you know, or it, it's you've got to come up with a reason. And it's, it's because we've seen these scenes so many times as well, it's actually really hard to come up with an original take on, Okay, how do I have Bond turn the tables on these guys in a way that feels plausible but is still kind of satisfying on the level of a thriller you know? It's,
1: mm-hmm. uh, well, there's two thi- there's two things on that. one the one, um, we don't have to go into it, but the fact that Doctor. Evil and Austin Powers are both men at a time stories the steve rogers of the of, of those movies so we we are, are having that conflict and it's the james bond in your comic book run is that how do you take that a man out of time kind of approach but the other thing is is like well they don't kill him because they they need to know why he's there like his being there means he's on there he's on somebody there they are on somebody's radar if we just kill him Someone else is just going to show up in a, in a few days. So I mean, we need to know.
0: Explicitly how- in Goldfinger. It's really smart. You know, when they, when they realize mm-hmm. they've, got, they've got Bond in a cell downstairs, you know, and then, yeah, we should just shoot him in the head. It's like, wait a minute. There's a couple of CIA guys with binoculars, like Felix Leiter's over there, right? At that fence <laughs> right. with their binoculars. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's bring Bond up here for some mint juleps, you know. So they, they deliberately parade Bond around and, like, you know, Felix is like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, Bond's having a drink. He's fine you know
3: he's like, right.
0: like the fact that bond is there means okay well we're on their radar but let's make it look like mm-hmm. everything's under control you know that's smart that's one of things that made goldfinger such a smart villain you know that, that and that in fact his plan was really great you know and yeah. then he only does the whole kind of like you no know, mr bond i expect you to die that is the i'm going to shoot you in the head moment and then bond has to do some yeah. quick thing to make it and he, he he calls his bluff he pretends he knows more than he does and then goldfinger's like mm-hmm. okay okay so we do need to keep him alive to find out how much he knows about operation grand slam right even though Bond yeah. doesn't actually know anything about operation grand slam at this sure. point
1: he's 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 he's, va- he's vamping at this point yeah he's like i got to do but, i got to like pull we it we out yeah.
0: he's and he's just basically bullshitting at this point in desperation makes it a great bond moment you know because mm-hmm. it's just using the one little thing he's got you know and it, and it pays off. It's a gamble, you know, and that, that's great. It's a great yep. story. Teller. They're they they're two very smart people trying to outplay each other. Uh, whereas at the end totally. of Quantum of Solace, you know, they they've got the you know, let me show you around my base and explain my plan, and then you know, somebody shoots. I think it's a hydrogen fuel cell in a hotel in the desert, and then everything explodes. Yeah. Why is this hotel exploding? It just yeah, it just kind of felt like well, cuz it's the end of a bond movie and everything has to explode, sure. I I didn't buy it, you know. There's a lot I do yeah, like a, about it. Bond
1: was bond, but, yeah. yeah, it it it's it, I think that third act, it, that whole set piece just kind of fe- felt bloated for no reason. It, it it could have probably been a much smaller and more uh intimate solution.
0: Yeah. That's what yeah, I want. It- always the script it's always kind of like it's the same in comics like i was saying before about deadlines it's kind of like get the script right first you know just how, yeah. how hard it be you know when you've got that the resources of you know the, the bond franchise you know
1: you
2: you can hire
0: any screenwriter you want to do this you know just get it right get the script right guys
1: right but the writer is the least important person in the process as far as the the machine is concerned Yeah. the replaceable it doesn't matter. We'll just get someone who I'll fire that guy and then hire a guy who's going to listen to what I have to say, which is you kind of
0: producers a, who have a sense of story. I think fundamentally. Sure. I think one of the reasons why sure. Marvel has done so well is Kevin Feige has a really good sense of story. You know, yeah. For sure. He understands how to make satisfying standalone movies that also build to make a, a bigger story. You know. They totally. Sort of own terms at least I have done. Um, yeah. Yeah. For, oh my god! Oh my god! Star Wars sequels, right? Like, mm. how, like you're make, making sequels, sequel trilogy to the most successful film franchise of all time. You know, like, have a roadmap, guys. It was so clear, yeah. just making it up as they went along. You know, and it's like, I'm in the Rise of Skywalker. Did you see that? I, mean, I yeah. love Star Wars. You know, I love it. You know, yeah, I grew I know. Up, it, made me, it made me want to tell stories for a living, you know. And then mm-hmm. I'm watching it at the cinema, I'm like, who's flying this plane? You know, it's uh, It did. But then it came along and it kind of reaffirmed my faith in Star Wars. You know, it can be good. I
1: I absolutely agree. We, my wife and I watched that and just every week we, we just were thrilled. And I know when something is really good for someone who is not entrenched in this shit, like I am, like my wife isn't, she's a human being. And, when she when we watch these things and we've we're it, and she goes i want to watch it all over again like to me that like that's the benchmark of this worked because someone who isn't in this goes i love it yeah
0: yeah it's for everybody and that comes back to the comic Mm -hmm. graphic novel thing i was saying about like you know the the books that you can put into anybody's hand and they'll get it whereas the the, you know and it it, it should be able to do that yeah it's universal you know because a good story is mm-hmm. universal i mean when star wars first came out it was very universal it was just a fairy tale in space you know and like sure. it's a story that anybody can get but you know then as it as this is true of anything not specific to star wars but as something develops a fandom the danger is it slides more into being sort of pandering to fans rather than telling a universal mm-hmm. story and i thought one of the reasons i think that and or really stands out from the pack is that tony gilroy is not a huge fanboy and he's been very open about right. that he's not a huge fanboy he just wants to tell a story that he wants to tell and it shows you know you can show that to anybody and they get it i think you know star yeah. wars kind of sight of that I, 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 it's part, part, partly just personal taste but i've always liked the flavor of star wars that is the you know it's like you know resistance under occupation vibe <laughs> yeah. the, the, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back have, you know, because yeah. it you know, puts me in mind of all of the World War Two movies I grew up watching when I was a kid. You know, mm-hmm. It's kind of it's the French Resistance versus the Nazis kind of thing. You know, yeah. And so for me, that weird. was always more. Was a and you know the Lost Age of the Jedi Knights and stuff because that feels a bit too superhero for me. You know, uh, yeah, it's yeah. Purely just personal taste, but yeah, that book and or really hit hit the sweet spot for me for not just for oh, for the quality, same here writing and filmmaking but because genre wise yeah i like a good resistance story like i say you know you want
2: the it, heroes to be out of the house.
1: yeah well it's yeah i mean you, you want you want them to be able to punch up and get through and that's kind of what that whole that whole thing is um so, okay. I mean, I, it, you know, I mean, this is writer talk, but I think we could just keep going on all sorts of <laughs> points about writing and, I and working through. Them.
0: I'm just drunk like three yeah. of career, so.
1: <laughs> so let's, uh, so let's wrap, let's wrap it up here. Um, so dragon tooth, when, when are people going to be able to, uh, invite themselves into this world? The
0: expanse dragon tooth issue one is coming out in a, Week or two, I think. Uh, in fact, no, it's actually next week. It's due to be out like uh, April fifth, I believe. Okay. to right. last week. So nice. Like, unless unless nice. something's happened, I don't know about it. Should be out next week. Um, yeah, we've been kind That's of like do doing little tweaks to get it just right for for the first issue. It's um, amazing. So that should be available in comic shops. Uh, if you don't know where your local comic shop is, just get onto the. Google for comic shop locator service and you'll find it. Um, <laughs> and the, the, we're going to collect them into graphic novels uh, of four issues each. But that obviously will be oh, great. down the line. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to find out what people think of it. Like, I, hope I, I hope I've done a good job. And I, I'll tell you that uh, Ruben Kubilas, the uh, the artist, has done a great job on the art. Um, you know, the Rossi looks like the Rossi and the crew look like the crew and um, cool. yeah you've got you've got the rossi crew you've got a Bassarala. you've got drummer and bull and uh some new characters who i want to spoil yet but who are going to mess things no.
1: up No, that's what the comics are for is to spoil it all but in time <laughs> yes never <read> <laughs> <laughs> um that that's great and when do you think you'll be able to announce the project? Are you going to announce it in the fall, the next one, or yeah? It's, it's that?
0: a big thing. Uh, I really, I can't wait to be able to talk about it. Uh, well, let's do this again when I can. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, the current plan, I think, is to announce in the fall, but it's it's pretty loose at this point. It's it's a big thing that requires a lot of development. Um, Great. Yeah, like, and this is the one where I've just I've got so many ideas, and I've got to into the big picture. It's, a lot of a lot of characters um so yeah it's it's something i'm really excited about uh, i'm quite inspired with it and i realize it's annoying that i'm just being very vague uh,
1: no it's part yeah. of the, it's part of the business i mean and you, also you don't want to kind of ruin the magic before you've you've actually put it all down so i guess
0: yeah. it's something i'm really excited about it, it started off something i wasn't even pitching i was just spitballing with an editor about like things that could be done um I'm just off the top of my head, just rattled off a few ideas, and he was like, "That's amazing! You should totally do that." Really? Okay. Really? (laughs) Honestly, I can't (laughs) believe they let me do it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, but again, it's another example of I'm being given given a lot of leeway to just do do my thing, you know. Uh, And you know, uh, maybe another editor might hate it, but the one I have is kind of like, "Yeah, that's great. Do that." So, yeah, that's great. but at the
1: moment the extent
2: is most of time.
1: Well, I can't I can't wait to read it. Um Thanks for joining me, Andy. Uh you okay? Everything good? Was this good? Had a good yeah, talk? No, I a really enjoyed it. Yeah, like I,
0: I would happily do this again when we can talk more about uh Excellent. About my mystery project. But it'll probably be a while
1: yet. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um yeah, I'll put all the all the contact info where to find you online on the uh, in the description. Yeah, like,
0: so Twitter is where where I waste time, mostly when I should be working um, how there you long go. around, we'll see because Elon Musk seems to be helping we'll on see. this.
1: Just It just keeps, it just keeps kind of limping along. So we'll see how long this goes. Um, all right, man. Well, I appreciate the time, man. This is great. I, uh, I, I thoroughly love the, uh, the in-depth talk here. So good luck. Lo- oh, and dude, keep working on the pros.
0: Yes, make those I, uh, chapters. Well, I, I don't have the mental RAM for it at the moment because, like you know, yeah. like I say, I'm kind of busy. But yeah, I'm, I'm very yeah. much looking forward to uh, to getting my brain back. Uh, I think that when I've when I finish these two projects, uh, I think that yeah, some short stories will be on the cards definitely.
1: Yeah. Right on. Well, I can't wait. To, I want to talk to you about that as well. All right.
0: Well, you know where I find me. All
1: right, my friend. Take care.
2: All right, it was good talking to you. Thanks, mate. Take okay, care. See you.